you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. All right. All right. So, back to Perlisvals. Back to Perlisvals. But before we begin... Since we don't have any shoutouts this week, we don't have anything extra special, but just a reminder that we do have a Discord, which is rapidly growing, which is fantastic. We love to see, I guess I was going to say all your beautiful shining faces, because that's what my teacher would say to me like when we all came in in the morning. But anyway, we don't get to see your faces, but we get to see your cool usernames. So All your beautiful shining usernames. Absolutely. But do check that out. Ping us for an invite. There should be an invite out on social media at the moment. If there's not, just ping us, let us know, and we'll get you that invite. And of course, we do have our Patreon. So if you are interested in supporting the podcast, we do have a Patreon where you can become a patron and get extra content, including exclusive audio, exclusive merch, uh, all that good stuff. So there you go. Just the usual spiel this week. But exciting things coming up, nonetheless. Yes, indeed. Anyway, back to Perlis Faust, the 13th century French chivalric romance with Interlacement. Yes. Yes, good job remembering that. I always forget that word. I love that word, and I keep seeing it everywhere, and I, I'm sitting here every day like, how can I apply interlacement in my everyday life? Like, not necessarily in my life. I don't personally need Percival coming into my life and then running out again and then having Lancelot come in. But like in my writing work, where can I use interlacement? Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, I guess it could apply to a video game if you had multiple protagonists. Mm-hmm. Let's see if there's any good examples. Well, it's not a video game, but it's based off of one. I'm, And I might have said this before, but the show Arcane, the League of Legends show Arcane, does a fantastic job of using interlacement. In that whenever one character achieves a goal, it ruins or gets in the way of some other major character's plan. So you constantly don't know who to root for because you want everybody to succeed, but you can't figure out how it's all going to work. So anyway, that's one way that I've seen it recently. Yeah, I have heard of that show. From a storytelling perspective, I really enjoyed it. You do not need to know anything about League of Legends, but it is the thing that finally got me over the edge and now my partner is teaching me how to play league it is not a story driven game whatsoever it is a strategy shooty game but i'm having fun that's good for those of you wondering i'm a i'm a level 12 adc mf player i'm very much not good and for the rest of you none of you know what that means no i don't know what that means <laughs> anyway <laughs> to perlis mouse to perlis mouse all right so we'll put a previously on right here bing Previously on Perlis Mouse. We learn that the Knight of the Burning Dragon is threatening King Arthur's lands. Percival encounters the Coward Knight, forces him to fight, and makes him into the Bold Knight. Percival goes to confront the Knight of the Burning Dragon because, among other things, he has killed Percival's cousin. On the way to the Knight of the Burning Dragon, Percival converts one castle to Christianity and slaughters 1,500 people in another castle. Lancelot gets a brief reprieve in the beheading game. Percival defeats the Knight of the Burning Dragon and wins the Gold Circle. Percival defeats the King of Castle Mortal and returns the Grail Castle, i.e. the Castle of the Fisher King, to its previous holy state. And now we'll jump in with Branch 19. 
All right. By branches, this is us starting the second half, but a lot of the branches in the 20s are very short. So I think that by time, we're more than halfway through. Okay, right on. All right. We're back with King Arthur again, and the author now wants to assure us, quote, The story is true and contains no errors unless the Latin deceives us. I'm pretty sure it's not the Latin doing the deceiving, sir. Well, it says right here, it contains no errors. How the hell is that even supposed to work? Like, to be fair, Professor Powell has introduced this idea in all of her classes that you lean on older works and you sort of prop yourself up and, and as a as an author and say like, oh no, I know what I'm doing. If anything is incorrect, it must be in the original. It's From what I know, all of it is true and proper. And that is how you sort of boost yourself up and give yourself some sort of credit. Exactly. In this day and age. And it's sort of a rule of the genre, if you will, that everybody knows that it's a fake story, but there's probably true elements and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I've had people argue that that is not, in fact, a rule of the genre and that these authors fully expected to, like, deceive their audiences into thinking that all of this was true, and I just don't see it. I mean, I think you can get away with that for some books, like the what is it, the murderous history of pirates or whatever, which is more of a 18th, 19th century work. And it's very much like, oh, yes, I found this old account and let me just write it all down. But all of that stuff seems plausible to have happened. Whereas this is, quite frankly, ridiculous. Yes. Yes, it does not sound real. And I actually, I do think, I'm curious to, to know who has made this argument because I think it puts the Middle Ages into a really, really bad light, which is what Renaissance intellectuals and Enlightenment intellectuals were trying to fundamentally do. But regardless, ignoring them, medieval people were just like us and their thoughts and ideas, even though they were wrong, made sense. They made a lot of logical sense. And yeah, you can read some Inquisition records. There are some amazing Inquisition records where the guy being interrogated says something like, yeah, like God created all animals except for the wolf because a wolf ate a bunch of my sheep. So it's totally evil. So God existed and then the devil existed and then also the wolf existed. And I know this, like, this is what I believe. And the guys, the inquisitor is like, that, that's so wrong on so many levels. And he's like, oh, I confess and I won't think this way anymore. But a lot of that comes from a lack of education. <laughs> but... With a lot of these ideas, particularly as we've seen in the leech books and in medicinal works, a lot of their ideas made sense for how much they knew about the science at the time. And you can't fault them for that at all. Because I'm sure, you know, 200, 1000 years from now, if there are any humans left, hopefully we'll have drudged ourselves up from where we are now. And hopefully they'll look back on us and be like, wow, look at these fools with their phones and technology. Can you believe they were using cable? They believed in this shit. That's just how it works, the day and the age. So, But I fundamentally don't believe that all medieval folks were, I guess, stupid? Yeah. What, like, what else are you going to call that? Basically, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I'm always curious to see like how people believe that, because, of course, they did believe in very spiritual things that many people these days believe is bogus, but also they lived in a cosmology which made a lot of sense to them. Well, the last time I encountered that argument, it was a case of motivated reasoning where someone 
fully, fully believed in Atlantis and was convinced that it was never a thought experiment. Oh, wow. But like a real history. And I was trying to explain like, no, look, the way it's presented is actually a standard of a lot of old writing where you say like, oh, this is totally true. I found this in an old book. Exactly. Staple of the genre. Wow. The surrounding material makes it very clear that, like, they had been basically instructed to create a fake story. And then someone was like, I happen to find in an old book a story that fits our needs. Like, oh okay, gosh. obviously, that's just the introduction. Was it Geoffrey of Monmouth? No, this is actually from the original Plato. Oh, oh, that makes that make. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because it's Atlantis. But Geoffrey of Monmouth does this, too. It's very yes, strange. It is wild. Anyway. So our author is insisting that this is a true story set in 1 CE. Yes. Right after Christ's death, essentially. But they're all living in 13th century England at the same time. Yes, exactly. And it contains no errors. Absolutely not. Anyway, Arthur's in his hall and he notices there's something a bit funny about the sunlight coming in the windows. So he sends some knights outside to check it out and they report back that there are two suns in the sky. That seems incredibly fishy. Yes, Arthur thinks so too, so he prays for an explanation and actually gets a response. You know, given that he's such a bad king who is, like, reviled by God and is not very holy, I'm very surprised that he's got a, a straight line, direct connection oh, to well, the big man. Apparently that was just more common back in the day. <laughs> Fair enough. But the answer is, do not be amazed, O king, if two suns appear in the sky, for they are in God's power. Know that they come out of joy for the conquest that the good knight has made. He who bore the shield from your court. He has reconquered the land which belonged to the good fisher king from the wicked king who had cast out the true faith and caused the grail to vanish. Now it is God's wish that you go there and choose the best knights of your court to accompany you for a finer pilgrimage you could never make. And when you return, your faith will have redoubled and the people of Britain will have better learned to serve the savior. I don't know what I expected. But this seems entirely in line with the rest of the story. Yeah. One, God can do these sorts of things. Two, it's a good omen. Three, go on a pilgrimage. Checks out. You get all the things you need. They sit down to eat, pleased with all this, when a damsel shows up with a golden and bejeweled casket. This is one of those nobody can open except things, but with a twist. Ooh, all right. See, so you said bejeweled, and all I thought was like, you know, those little, the things from the 90s with the sequins. I thought those like, were bedazzlers. Bedazzling, that's what it was. Yes, yes. It's a I thought of a bedazzled casket. casket. <laughs> <laughs> Rhinestones and glitter. <laughs> so the bedazzled casket holds the head of a knight with sealed letters attesting his identity and can only be opened by the one who killed said knight. The damsel wants Arthur and his court to try it, and he agrees that they will do so after the meal. I guess she knows, like... She knows that King Arthur's court is where all the knights are knighted, and then they just go out and murder people, so she's come to the right spot. Yeah. Statistically. There's also an unusual clause. Rather than asking for vengeance on the killer, the damsel extracts a promise of a truce with the killer until 40 days after that pilgrimage that they were just told to go on. Okay. Ulterior motives. Hey, they'd give the casket a try. Arthur cannot open it, but when he tries, he does get a unique result. Quote, Sweat started pouring from the coffer as though it were soaked in water, which, ew. Yeah, ew. All the knights try, one by one, 
And then Kay walks up for the following verbatim conversation. Okay, I had forgotten you. But my love, you should not have forgot me, for I am as good a knight as those whom you summon first. Now, Kay, would you be so pleased if you could open the coffer and were therefore responsible for killing the knight whose head lies within? Truly I, who am a king, would not have wished to open the coffer, for there was never a knight so poor that he did not have some relative or friend to avenge him. And he who is hated by one man is not loved by everyone. By my life, sire, I wish the heads of all the knights that I had killed, except for one, were in this hole with sealed letters declaring that they were killed by me. Then you would believe what you would not believe because of the jealous ones who think they are of greater worth than I, but have not served you as well as I have. Come forward, Kay. This talk is of no purpose. Kay opens the coffer, which emanates a sweet scent. Ooh, saints. Sire, now you can see that I have acted bravely and boldly in your service. Neither you nor any of your knights whom you hold in such high esteem could have opened up this coffer today. You would have never known from them what lies within. But because of me, you do know, and for that, you should be grateful to me. I feel like Kay's got this all backwards. Yes, very definitely he has this all like, backwards. He, he straight up comes and he's like, hey bruh. I wish that everybody I'd ever killed was in this room. You know what? He's like a f boy. Expand on that. Okay, okay. Like, I get the vibes of it being like, girl, I wish that every other woman that I dated and then dumped was in this room just so I could show you how not worth it they were. Or, or to reverse it, girl, I wish every single ex that you ever had was in this room and then I would beat them up and then you would see how cool of a boyfriend and how loving I really am to you. Okay, I see that. It's like, this is not the point that you want to make, Kay. Like, all you're, you're not acting in an honorable way. All you're doing is proving that you killed a man. And then you're doubling down on it and saying that you would want to prove to King Arthur how many men you have killed. Well, to be fair, they are knights. They kill a lot of people. It's kind of their job. Ugh. This whole, like, I just, you know, you're right. They're not, like, they're not trying to ensure justice for the kingdom. If they are, they're very bad at it. They're incredibly bad at it. He just seems like a really bad boyfriend to King Arthur. <laughs> yes, that's the takeaway. <laughs> Arthur calls for a chaplain to read the letters, which I think might indicate that he and the rest of his court are illiterate. I mean, hold on. The sweetness of flowers did pop up around the body. Yes. So maybe King Arthur just doesn't really want to risk touching a holy document. Like, you know, you don't mess with a dead body of a saint. Okay, that could be an alternate explanation. I feel like that's worth at least two cents. Yeah. Although it's not out of the question that everyone else is illiterate. Oh, absolutely not. Could be both. Yeah. Uh, it turns out this is the head of Loholt, son of Arthur and Guinevere, whom Kay had, you may recall, murdered in order to steal credit for a giant slaying. That's right. We've come full circle. Bro, Kay, my dude, you've just admitted to killing the king's son, and you're proud of it. My man. Pretty much. Once they realize who it is, mourning commences. That's mourning with a U. We are told that Arthur had been hoping that this knight of the Circle of Gold, about whom he had heard, was actually Loholt. We are also told that the truce they had agreed to would have been violated had Kay not snuck out of the court while everyone else was distracted with grief. Understandable. It makes sense why she asked for the truce. 
It also turns out that this whole drama was a plot by the damsel to take revenge on Kay for, quote, the disgrace that Kay had done her one day. And I think we all know what that means. I think that's entirely warranted. I think this is a very, very well executed piece of revenge. And it, it is also foreshadowed. You may recall that when we heard the tale of Loholt and his giant slaying and Kay killing him, this damsel did come up and ask for Loholt's head. That's right. So this was this was foreshadowed that there was that this head was coming back. There's that interlacement for you again. Yeah. The head of Loholt is sent to Avalon. Arthur prepares for his Grail pilgrimage, on which he will be accompanied by Lancelot, Gawain, and a squire. Kay, meanwhile, heads to Brittany. He's going to get out, man. He's coming to France. There he becomes a retainer of Brienne of the Isles, who promptly begins waging war on Arthur's court. Makes sense. And Brienne of the Isles is going to come back, so let's remember that he's French. Sounds good. Is this Brienne? How is that spelled? B-R-I-E-N. Okay, cool. Because there's that pretty cool female badass character in Game of Thrones named Brienne. Right, but she has an extra N-E on the end of her name. Yes. And that's the end of Branch 19. Very nice. Short, quick, to the point. Yep. Again, these women and their badass quests. Yeah. Now we've got one of revenge. It's so bad. Often very unusual quests, but you kind of get the point of them. Mm-hmm. She needs revenge. She can't do it herself because she is but a damsel. Alas. So she plots and brings severed heads in boxes. There's a lot of severed heads being carried by women. Yes. So Branch 20. On Arthur's pilgrimage, a strange thing occurs. Night falls, and they are without lodging. That is a strange occurrence. Is there no hermitage nearby? To quote, Sir Gowan was much surprised that they had ridden all day without finding either a castle or a hermitage. They have reached the one stretch of land in all of Britain without a hermitage within five clicks. So they have their squire climb a tree and look for signs of habitation. He spots a fire lit in a ruined house, and they head there. It does look abandoned, but they settle in around the fire. The squire goes to look for food for the horses and comes running back screaming. I was gonna say, this is straight up like an Elden Ring setup. Why do you think he's screaming? I just want to see if you can guess something. Oh no. I mean, I figure that he saw a ghost or maybe Percival is coming out of the woods charging for them. Because I would also run screaming if I saw Percival in the woods at night. These are good guesses. Or any time. But what is this text famous for? We've commented on it just recently. Chopped heads? Yes, he's found a room full of hundreds of disembodied heads. What the f***, Perilous Mouse? And feet. Heads and feet. Ooh. Why? Mm. Do we do we learn why? <laughs> yes, we do. Oh, okay. <laughs> you just you just shrugged like it was nothing. Like we don't come back to it. I was, I was worried for a second. No, we come back to it. Kind of. It's an explanation. Fair enough. So there is somebody nearby who has lit this fire for them, who is also hoarding heads and feet. Yes. Okay. Lancelot goes to look and comes back laughing, sir. And he says, it is indeed a room full of body parts. And he says he's never seen so many dead men in one place. <laughs> On a serious note, I feel like that could actually be a response from PTSD. Like, I feel like that could be an actual response. You don't know what else to do. You see something so horrifying and so ridiculous, you just start laughing. 
That might honestly be it. Like, I was thinking he was just desensitized. That could be the other part of it. But, Sir Gowan points out that they have nothing to fear from dead men. Only what put them there. But okay. As they are discussing, a maiden arrives of the following description. Direct quote. They looked at each other and watched as she came through the door with her hair all undone and her gown torn by thorns. And her feet were covered in blood because she had no shoes, but her face was fair indeed. Across her shoulders, she was carrying half a dead man, and this she threw into the chamber with the others. Okay, we're breaking the pattern, but alright. Well, there's still maidens carrying disembodied parts. Right, but it's, it's one half of a person, not just their head or feet. That's true. Maybe she's a slightly uh, more fit maiden and she can carry more. <laughs> Get swole so you can drag the dead bodies of your enemies around to collect. Gaslight gatekeep girl boss. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say, fellas? I wish your like gestures and facial expressions could come through. <laughs> we might have to start doing that. Anyway, she's thrilled to see them because this could mean the end of her penance. This is the queen of the Castle of the Beards. Oh. Who you might remember had a bunch of, like, knights with their bits chopped off serving in her castle. Yes. Forced, and I have in parentheses, by God, question mark? Unclear. Forced to do penance for her cruelty until Lancelot's return. Her penance, by the way, is to collect all the bits and corpses she was responsible for and guard them here at the manor. That's very tantalous of them. That's very Greek. Yeah. But so that's why there's a room full of disembodied heads and feet. For some reason, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but that makes sense. For the genre. For the genre. (laughs) Lancelot expresses horror at, quote, so cruel a penance, quote, but there's more. Oh boy. It would seem that every night a band of demon knights come here and fight each other. Lancelot is told to draw a circle in the ground with his sword so that they may be protected from the demons, which he does. Ooh, that's interesting. That's that's some exorcism necromancy right there. Yeah, and I want to show you this. My copy has these little summaries of each page in the corners, where it says, like, this is the major oh. events that happen on this page. Like, Oh my gosh, yes, 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 Gowan's like in Shakespeare. second encounter with the knight, or... The battle in the graveyard, or the waning of Arthur's court. Mm-hmm. And the one for this page says, Lancelot draws a circle. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. No need to mention the demons. Yes. I just thought Not that, at all. I thought that was really entertaining, and that it's an accurate description of, like, yes, that is what's happening, but <laughs> could you have phrased it differently? Now I just want... A little image of a knight with a sword on the ground, just with a circle around him. Lancelot draws a circle. Boom. Said demons arrive and fight with burning firebrands. Lancelot is unable to restrain himself and goes to fight them. The others join in, quote, King Arthur and Sir Gawain leapt forward to help Lancelot and set upon the evil men and cut them to pieces. They screamed like demons and the whole forest resounded. And as they fell to the ground and could endure no more, both they and their horses turned to filth and ashes, and black demons rose from their bodies in the form of crows. The... the people? Like, the horses. The horses and... The horses and the demon knights. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Because there was a lot of simile going on there. I, I, I always forget which one simile is and which one metaphor is. One uses like and as, but the whole, like, like demon thing... 
simile. Simile uses like and as. Ah, thank you. See, I'm terrible with these things. I have an English degree. Look how far I got. <laughs> you have two. You have a master's. I do, actually. Oh, sh**. <laughs> I still don't know what the difference between a simile and a metaphor is. Oh, dear. See, that's why I have two master's degrees. Boom. You will never not know the difference. You will always all hail the king of degrees. <laughs> anyway, I wasn't sure what was going on there. So Lancelot was screaming like a demon. I think the people they're attacking are screaming like demons, but it is just so they. The demons are screaming like demons. As you would expect. Okay, yes, that makes sense. I just wouldn't use a simile there, but, you know, what can I say? As someone with two degrees who doesn't know what a simile or metaphor is, I really shouldn't be commenting on 13th century writing. <laughs> you know, I used to have a roommate who would, every time she said something, like, ridiculous or nonsensical, would just make a face and then go like, I have two master's degrees. Because <laughs> she did. She had an MBA and an MFA. That's amazing. It's it, That's so funny, like, how specified you can get in your knowledge and still mess up on the little things. Point being, don't take anybody too seriously. Yes, facts. As soon as they sit down to rest from their battle, more demon knights arrive. They bear blazing lances and carry the bodies of knights they have killed to be deposited with the rest. Ooh, we got spiritual demons with spiritual bodies or are these corporeal bodies i think they're bringing corporeal bodies and they're like this is where we put the bodies right this is the body storage place <laughs> the body storage facility arthur lancelot and gowan engage these in combat as well but are having great difficulty until a bell rings and the demon knights disperse we get an odd note here also josephus tells us that this time there was no bell in britain or Brittany. People were summoned by a horn instead, or in some places with a steel drum, and in others with wooden clappers. And so King Arthur was filled with wonder at the sound, so sweet and beautiful, and he felt sure that it must have come from God, and that it would be a wonderful thing to behold if that were possible. Again, makes sense for the genre. Yeah, I like that this is one of the few gestures towards, like, hey, this is not this time, this is a previous time, and they don't have... They don't have those things. Yeah. I'm really not sure how accurate that is because bells are a very old technology. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't... Hmm. Well, I mean, I suppose it's possible that there weren't bells, but... I mean, there was definitely a period of time where there were no bells on Britain. There was probably multiple periods of time when there were no bells on Britain. Yeah. But in the first century, I don't know. I feel like there would have been bells. I want to say probably, but... Like... I don't know. Maybe they didn't. Is that worth Googling? I feel like that's worth Googling. I did Google it. I'm on the Wikipedia page for Bell right now. Oh, no. I feel like typing this question is incredibly silly. When did bells become prevalent in Britain? Maybe they mean church bells. No, because they specified, like, the clapper. Yeah. Interesting. Bells were first authorized for use in Christian churches around 400 AD. But, like, they existed since forever. Yes, essentially. Like back in the thousands BCE. Yes. But I don't know. Who knows when they came to Britain? I don't have that. I, I think we're missing the point here. I think the point is more, this is the sign from God rather yes. than, oh, how curious they didn't have bells in Britain. Yes. Yes, we are <laughs> missing the point. <laughs> That's sort of our job, though, on this podcast. Yes, and, and 
Arthur finds that the sound of the bell is sweet and he thinks it must come from God and that probably has something to do with church bells and there we go. Yes. The next morning, some hermits show up and say that everything is cool now and they're going to make this a holy place. That's quite uplifting given that there's quite a lot of bodies and it would be good to bury them in a holy place according to their customs. Very probably. Yeah, apparently whatever that was broke the curse, I suppose. Well, the penance was broken when Lancelot showed up and fought the first demon knights. And then God told the bell and got rid of the demons. And then there was also the exorcism circle. Yeah. Even though they ran outside of the exorcism circle, so. Yeah. Who knows? But yeah, it's broken. Gonna be a hermit place. Holy place. Hermitage. Hey! But that means they're gonna have a new hermitage to stop at. So now it's not, like, within the section of Britain that doesn't have a hermitage, because now there is one. Yeah, you know, this whole hermitage desert is now fixed. There we go. We solved the real problem. The three continue onward, hearing a bell each hour, which they unaccountably find pleasant rather than annoying. Arthur asks the others to conceal his identity and call him their companion rather than their lord. Smart. Eventually they reach a lovely castle where they can seek lodging for the night, which apparently belongs to some people from Lancelot's recent past. Is it the poor knight? Nah, not the poor knight. But instead it is from Branch 20, our first dialogue. Oh, it's her again. <laughs> yes, okay, sorry. Oh, it's you. You're the one who forced my husband to marry me. I kind of wish you hadn't. I know there was no way to foresee this, but it ended up being a pretty unhappy marriage. The knight of the castle enters. Oh, it's you. You're the one who forced me into this unhappy marriage. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah, my ex is pretty at you too. You should watch out. Yes, she... she told me. Bring us some water. The lady brings a basin. What? Bringing water is beneath your station, says King Arthur. If you don't like it, leave. They remain. <laughs> it is also seen that the lady does not eat at the main table, but, quote, with the squires, unquote. You know, there are there are many injustices that King Arthur will not stand for. <laughs> but sexism is not one of them. He will he will dine with a misogynist. <laughs> the knight explains that he has promised his ex not to treat his wife with any honor. That's horrible. Okay. Yep. They're not happy, but they stay the night anyway. They being Arthur Lancelot the and party. And yeah, they stay the night anyway and leave in the morning without further addressing the issue. Lancelot comments to the others, and I quote, Lancelot said to the king and Sir Gawain that if the knight had not given them lodging and had kept them outside the castle, he would have put his blood at stake to win more honorable treatment for the lady, either by force or entreaty, just as he had done when he secured her marriage. I think Lancelot should stay out of this one. Yes. I'm not sure if it's like... If we weren't staying with him, I would have fought him. But since we were, I felt it would be awkward or if it's a laws of hospitality thing or what. My guess is laws of hospitality because Lancelot has no impulse control. But yes, so this is also not the last time these these two come up again. These people that, if you'll recall, Lancelot forced this knight to... I'm, I know you remember, I'm talking to the listeners. Yes. If you recall, Lancelot forced this knight to marry a woman whom he had planned to just... 
have an affair with. If yeah, I basically. But he, he, he forced a marriage, essentially, because the woman wanted to marry him and the knight didn't want to marry her. And then shortly afterward, he r- ran into the ex of the knight. Yes. Who was, who. Well, they were still together. Out. That was the thing. Right. Well, now they she's wanted his ex, to be cause, together. Because he's married. Yeah. Yes. Ugh, what a mess. They next reach the castle of Tintagel, where the land surrounding the castle has crumbled away, leaving a great chasm. An old, white-haired priest is there, and he is able to explain that it has crumbled on account of a great sin, namely, the circumstances of Arthur's conception. That actually makes sense with all of the rest of Arthurian lore. Yes, yes, it is the same story, too. For those of you who don't know, I will summarize it for you, because the hermit, priest, whatever, summarizes it for them. See, Arthur's father, Uther, had the hots for a woman named Ugair, who is already married to King Gorloi. Uther and Gorloi go to war over this, and one night, while Uther is besieging Gorloi's castle, Tintagel, and Gorloi is elsewhere, Uther has Merlin cast an illusion to make him look like Gorloi, sneaks in, and sleeps with Ugern. Also, you may be familiar with her. Her name is sometimes pronounced Ugrain. Right. Here it's Ugern, spelled with a U and everything. Wow. But yeah, better known as Ugrain. Shortly afterwards, Uther kills Gorloi and marries Ugern. This is all, incidentally, news to Arthur. We also get this tidbit about Merlin. Quote, My lords, said the priest, in this tomb was laid the body of Merlin, but he could never be placed inside the chapel. The tomb had to remain out of doors. And I tell you true, the body does not now lie in the tomb, because as soon as it was placed there, it was borne away by God or by the devil. Could be either one. We're not entirely sure. Yeah. He was a wizard after all. Yeah. Merlin can't be buried in a chapel. Instead, he's got a tomb outside the chapel because he's like half devil or whatever. Yeah, I think he's supposed to be half devil in a lot of cases. And then again, you have something of this idea in different stories about whether he's a hindrance or a help to Arthur. And then like same with Morgana or Morgan Le Fay, like she's his enemy in a lot of them, but also an ally in others. Mm-hmm. And it's just weird. So if you're working with magic or the Fae, it could go either way at any given time. It really depends on what the author wants to do. Yes. And I guess how in the pockets of the church they are. Yeah. In this particular case, it looks like the author just avoided it entirely because I think this is the only time <laughs> Merlin is mentioned in this entire text. Amazing. I can appreciate that. They continue on, and we get some pretty wild world-building, which I will quote. Josephus tells us that the Isles had changed in appearance because of the strange adventures which God had brought to pass. But truly, the knights did not like seeking adventures so much if they did not find them strange. For when they came to a forest or an isle where they encountered an adventure, and returned some time later and found different fortresses and castles and adventures, then their toil and hardship did not seem tiresome to them. And it was God's wish that the land be confirmed in the new law. Literally a D&D campaign. Yeah. Yeah, and I like that the kind of mutable geography that we tend to see, where the, where there are places that don't have a location, but just kind of mm-hmm. appear narratively, is apparently part of how the world works in this text intentionally. That's amazing. It also solves the entire problem of... Where is this on a map? How does this actually work? The answer is that it works because God said so. And it's way cooler to have adventures that are new every time. Yeah. Where is it on a map? It's wherever God wants it to be at any given time. Boom. I'm the DM and I said so. 
After some more travel, Lancelot remembers he has an appointment to get his head chopped off. That's right, he does. He's gotta go back. Yes. He leaves the others, and we follow him. Lancelot arrives in the city, the Waste City, to hear a sourceless weeping and bewailing echoing about, which he doesn't really investigate. And soon a knight, whom we are told is the brother of Hydrox, the knight who, had, who Lancelot had beheaded, shows up That's to right. cut his head off. <laughs> At least Lancelot honored this promise. Yeah. Lancelot is about to submit to this, but then realizes he will never see Guinevere again and gets very upset. Oh, buddy. To quote, Then tears flowed from his eyes, and the story says that never in all the time that he had been a knight had he wept for any sorrow that had befallen him, save on this occasion and one other. He picked three blades of grass and took communion. How you take communion with three blades of grass is beyond me, but apparently there's some, like, rough and ready ritual you can do. Transubstantiation. Yeah, fair. I guess for those, real quick, for those who are not as familiar with that term, transubstantiation is the belief and or transformative process of the bread and wine, or in this case, three blades of grass, into the literal flesh and blood of Christ. Yes. Which is what Catholics traditionally believe in. There's also consubstantiation, which is where you get the bread and the wine staying bread and wine, but spiritually they are the body and blood of Christ. But it's not a metaphor. Like the spirituality or like the, I guess, platonic ideal of the bread and the wine is the blood and body of Christ, but it's not It's not quite a symbolism yet. So you have transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and then the symbolism. Yes. And it's all cannibalism. Not the symbol one. Mm, symbolic cannibalism. Fair enough. I can't argue against that. Seriously, I think some of the early Christians did get accused of cannibalism because of this. Oh, they absolutely did. The Romans thought it was very strange. Yeah, which, it, to be fair, it, it is. But whatever floats your god. I just want to know how he did it with three blades of grass. Like, how do you do that in a way that is canonical with church doctrine? I don't know. I'd like to see instructions for that. Me too. Like, if I'm in a pinch or, like, if I want to go to the park and have, like, a socially distanced COVID communion, like, I don't, like, I don't know, you do, like, an outdoor church and you have a socially distanced communion, can, like, instead of having the little blaster guns for the communion wafers, why not just do a little ritual with the blades of grass? And then, you know, you chomp down on the blades of grass and it grows for, like, 30 seconds and then you're fine. Yeah, I don't know. Possibly someone does know how this is done. I, I assume that it's just you do the ritual and it's the same, but it is very specific. Yes, that's that's curious. Anyway. Yes, anyway. Then he crossed and blessed himself and then rose and knelt and stretched out his neck. The knight raised the axe. Lancelot heard the blow coming and ducked and the axe sped past. The knight said, Sir Knight, my brother whom you killed did not behave thus. He kept his head and neck still. So must you. At strike one, Gawain had two strikes. That's true. I'm curious to see if Lancelot can beat him. Well, we don't get to find out, because just as Lancelot is about to get his head chopped, two maidens appear at a window, and one calls... If you would earn my eternal love, throw down the axe and declare the knight free. If you do not, my love you shall never have. Lancelot is granted a reprieve and the maidens come down to give the following non-explanation. Sire, 
It is only right that we should love you more than any knight in the world, since we are the two sisters whom you saw living in such poverty at the poor castle, where you and... Oh, wait. Yeah, these are the sisters of the poor knight. Oh, no, that's not my question. They're both in love with him. Yes, maybe this is a platonic kind of love. This could go any number of ways. Let us read on. Let's see. Where you and Sir Gawain and another knight were lodged by my brother, and you gave us the treasure and the stronghold of the robber knights whom you killed. That was the D&D castle, by the way. Yes, it was. And this ruined city and the waste castle of my brother would never have been inhabited, and we would never have regained our lands if a true knight like you had not come. At least twenty knights here came just as you did, and each one killed a brother of ours, or an un- that's a lot of brothers- oh, or an uncle and a cousin, by cutting off their heads just as you beheaded the knight, and every one of them swore to return on the day declared. All of them broke their promise, for none dared return, and if you had failed to return on the day like the others had done, we would have lost the city forever and the castle which belongs to it. Lancelot hears rejoicing in the forest near the city. Then the city's entire population comes back in from offstage. That's a weird piece of witchcraft to have on your head, like on your house and family. Yeah, and that's as much explanation as we get is like what you just read is the most explanation we get of like why is there head chopping what was that whole deal about why is there an abandoned city i mean to be fair lancelot was coerced into it in the first place yes so i don't blame the other guys for not coming back but also it does seem like these guys were in a dire street yeah but i don't think we ever learned why just that this was the situation they needed someone to come back to get their head chopped off And because of that, they get their city back. See, that's not Lancelot's problem, so it wasn't included. This isn't their story. This is Lancelot's story. Fair enough. (laughs) It wasn't plot relevant. But it's not Lancelot's story anymore, because that's the end of the branch. Ooh, let's go. We're now back with Arthur and Gawain. They receive a message from a passing knight that's too information-dense to summarize, so I quote... He said that he was from the land of the Queen of the Circle of Gold, who had suffered a great misfortune, for the son of the widowed lady had won the Circle of Gold by killing the Knight of the Dragon, and she was to keep it for him until such time as he wished to collect it. But Nabigan of the Rock had seized it from her, and commanded a maiden to take it to a tournament, which was to be held in the meadow where the tent of the two maidens stood, where Sir Gawain had broken the evil custom, and the maiden would present it to the knight who won the tournament, for Nabigan was determined to win it in combat. Okay. I think I'm tracking. Yeah, so some guy, Navigan, stole the circle of gold. And instead of, like, keeping it, he's putting it up as a prize in a tournament so that he can win it in combat by winning the tournament. Yes, because it wouldn't be knightly for him to steal it. He has to win it. Yeah. Of course. Right. Makes total sense. I don't know why you thought that was confusing. (laughs) They, and their squire, when the author remembers to mention him, which he usually doesn't, go to the tent mentioned and make themselves at home, even changing out of their armor and into some nice clothes they find there. Incidentally, it notes that they bathe their faces and hands because they have been bruised by their iron mail, which I think is another, like, nice little bit of verisimilitude. Yes, absolutely. Ooh, that's a great word. What does that word mean, Mac? Oh, s***. Um... It's like being realistic, but it doesn't necessarily mean it is like reality. It more means that it's internally consistent. 
Yes. So like a dragon fight can't have realism, but it can have verisimilitude. That was exactly the example I was going to use. Like a dragon's wings can resemble the wings of animals that we see in our world, like that kind of physics applied. Or laser guns can have like our world physics applied, but make sense in the context of that universe. Right. Like it's, it's basically a way to say something is, even though it's not realistic, it feels realistic. Yes. Which is a nice touch for this, this story. Yeah. Verisimilitude is a, can include realism as well, but it's just a broader word. But anyway, vocab aside, <laughs> we have another dialogue. Here we go. The maidens show up, who own the tent, and they have the following conversation. Gowan says, direct quote, Welcome, damsels. You're making yourselves at home, I see. Being awfully free with my stuff for someone who refused our hospitality last time. I thought now that the, quote, evil custom, unquote, was broken, you would provide courteous lodging. Fine. You can stay here for the lap. Now you have to be the other maiden. Yes, I do. Ooh, who's your friend? To Arthur. Hey, are you going to be as cold to me as Garwin was? Even though I know he's a big flirt with everyone else. I would never be cold to any maiden. Do you want to be my knight at the LARP? Also, what's your name? Sure, and I am Arthur of Tintagel. Any relation to King Arthur? We know each other well. Well, of course I know him. He's me. <laughs> well, he can't say that because he's trying to fly <laughs> under the radar and pretend yes, not fair. to be the king. For reasons that I don't think are ever explained. It's just a whim. I mean, I get that. Well, if you're if you're like a famous person, don't you want to pretend like you're not for a little while? No paparazzi chasing you. Also, in this case, I feel like people would want to kill him because he's a bad king. But anyway. Right, they stay the night. The next day, the LARP is being set up around them. Hey, Garwin, you're going to do the fair unknown thing. Here are some red arms and armor. You'll be the red knight. Sure, that tracks. And I have some gold arms and armor for you, Arthur. Thanks, darling. They don their armor. Ooh, don't you look nice. Go fight well out of love for me. I hope I always fight well. Now, Garwin, remember, you're in disguise. Right. They leave for the LARP. I've got a good champion, don't I? Yeah, sure. You know, I think Gowen's still not going to sleep with me. I love these girls. They They're are so petty. rapidly becoming some of my favorite characters. <laughs> the first day of the LARP follows. Afterwards, as Arthur and Gowen are changing out of their armor, the dwarf who works for the maidens pops in to inform them that everyone agrees they performed the best at the LARP that day. Hooray! The next day, I have written E.M., which I think stands for Elder Maiden. Yes. Maybe I should just start calling her Emily. There we go. That works. The other one could be Emily. I was going to go with Ysold or something, but all right. All right, Ysold is probably better. That way we can at least keep them apart. Yeah. Anyway, Emily brings up the fact that Gowan made a promise to the King of the Watch several chapters ago to do the first thing a maiden asked of him without objection. <gasps> That's right. Is that how she's going to get him to sleep with her? No. I mean, I guess she already wasted that one on, on asking him to be the Red Knight. 
Well, no, this time she's she's invoking it now, because apparently we're going to pretend like this is the first time a maiden has made a request of him since then. Okay. Even though we all know that's not true. Yes. But it's the first it's the first one that she's made of him, which is also not true. No, no. Other maidens have made requests of him. She made a request of him to be the Red Knight. Like people have been asking him things. Technically, he's discharged his duty or possibly already violated it if a Necra at the tournament counts. Oh, yeah, that's true. But anyway, she's going to pull this one out. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's just the first one who knows to invoke it. That makes sense. That's very Fae-like of her. Anyway, Emily has a request, possibly born out of her grudge against him for turning her down last time. And it is as follows. Sir Gawain, so that you may see whether you are as true to your word as people say, I beg and entreat you to perform worse than anyone at the lock today, and to do all the cowardly deeds that a knight can do, and bear none but your own arms, so that you may be more clearly recognized. And if you fail to do so, you will have broken the promise you made to the king, and I shall personally go and tell him. What a snot! <laughs> I liked the phrasing. That is a direct quote. That's amazing. Gawain agrees. Also, Isolde gives Arthur azure arms this time. The second day of the LARP, Gawain spends the entire time running away and basically hiding behind Arthur's skirts. She's shaming him. That's hysterical. Yes. That's so great, because that's an actual thing that women could do and invoke onto men who have done them some kind of wrong. Shame was a very, very powerful tool in this period for both men and women. Indeed. Like, that's the whole thing behind the Skold's Bridal. The what? Oh, the Skold's Bridal. So I'll put one of these in the blog because they're very interesting to look at. What they were was like a headpiece that a woman would have to wear to shame her for some kind of wrongdoing. (laughs) Yes, uh, it's also known as the Witch's Bridal, Gossip's Bridal, or Brank's Bridal, or simply known as Brank's. It functioned to silence the wearer from speaking and can also cause extreme pain. So it's not great. It was literally a torture device in some ways, but it was also a way of shaming someone and like you could put bells on top of it or whatever. So you couldn't get away. I assume it's called a bridle because it's actually, it, since you said it stopped them from speaking, does it have like a bit, like a horse's bridle? Yes. Ooh. It's, they're nasty. They are nasty looking things. That, let me put it in the chat there. And I'll put one in the blog as well. Oh, that is nasty looking. Oh, it's horrifying. Hmm. This woodcut makes it look like this is more of an early modern thing, though. How old are they? Do you know? It's very scarlet letter. Yes, incredibly. It's first recorded in 1567. All right, so it might be an early modern thing, but it might have been around for a while and just no one wrote it down. Yes. Because that's like right at the... It's right at the end. Yeah. Like if if that was really the first use, I'd be comfortable saying it's it's early modern. Early modern, yeah. Not medieval, but there's no reason to believe that that's the, the, the first record we have is the first time it was used. Right. But anyway, there you go. Yeah, all right. Interesting knowledge. Where was I? Oh, yes. So Gowan is acting cowardly at the LARP and hiding behind Arthur. And this hinders Arthur so much that he doesn't do as well as he should either. (laughs) Well, yeah, because he's staring at Gowan like, what the heck, dude? Get out there. (laughs) 
I like to imagine that Arth- that Gawain's literally like clutching at his arm and going like, hide me, hide me. And this is just getting in the way. I would imagine so. I mean, what else? What else would it look like to fail miserably at the task? Everyone is lost as to who is winning the LARP because the red and gold knights who did so well yesterday are nowhere to be seen. Yes, exactly. I was wondering when that was going to come up. The third day... Gowan wears gold and is instructed to perform well and hide his name again, while Arthur wears red. Ooh, okay. They do I feel well. like this is clearly going against the rules of the LARP. Like, what? Can any can any knight pop in and drop out at any time? It doesn't seem like there's a lot of structure to this. There is not. Like, they just all pile in and wail on each other. Knights do as knights will do, I suppose. Knights will be knights. Ugh. Knights will be knights. Toxic patriarchy cue. <laughs> they do well, and Arthur sandbags a bit so Gowan can win the circle of gold, which he does. He then swears to bring it back to where it belongs. Okay. That night, the maidens resume their previous quest to get laid. God bless these women. They know what they want, and they're going after it. And I believe this is all verbatim in our next dialogue here. Starts with Isolde. Sire, I have been told that you performed many great feats of arms at the tourney out of love for me, and I am ready to reward them. I thank you, damsel. Your reward and your service are most dear to me, and your honor even more. I would wish you to have as much honor as any maiden can have, for no one should trust in a maiden who honor lacks. May God grant that you keep yours. And I have a note saying to remind future me <laughs> the patriarchy jingle right here. Yes, that makes sense. Problematic patriarchy! Yithel says to Emily, Damsel, this knight and Sir Gawain have been conspiring together. There is no comfort or courtesy in them. Let us leave them to sleep, and henceforth may God save us from such guests. By my life, were it not for the circle of gold and the duty from which he must free the queen who was to keep it, who is my lady, they would not leave this tent as they will. But, although Sir Gawain might be shy with maidens, I know that he is loyal in other ways and will not break his word. I do really enjoy these two. They're great. They're such a dynamic pair, especially since those are quotes. Yes. Those are straight out of the book. Anyway, (laughs) moving on from this. The next morning, some other knights from the LARP are carrying a wounded nab again in a litter. Apparently he did very badly, despite his plans to win the circle. Aw, buddy. And they run into Melio of Logris. Melio explains that Nabigan had seized his land unjustly, and he is looking for Gowan to help win it back. It is not clear why he doesn't confront Nabigan about it directly, since he definitely recognizes him. Well, he doesn't really have the resources to do so, as all of his land has been stolen. I mean, all he has to do is fight him one-on-one while he's wounded. Fair enough. That'll totally work. It might. (laughs) It seems to, whenever there's like a, oh, he's stolen my land, apparently all you have to do is kill the guy and lands back. Works in the text. It doesn't seem to work like that in real life. <laughs> You've gained loot. The knights inform him that they just saw Gowan acting like a coward, so Melio gives up looking for him and leaves. Finally, some consequences to these actions. <laughs> I like that the other knights notice him. That's pretty good. Yeah, and, and he was in his 
own arms. So of course they know it. They know who he is. Yep. Because again, these knights are like face blind. Yes. Gowan and Arthur take lodging at the Waste Manor. You may recall this as the place where Gowan was led by a dog in an early chapter and found a dead knight he was told had been slain by Lancelot. Gowan and Arthur are recognized, and the Lady of the Manor summons seven knights to deal with them. However, she is too courteous to have them attacked while they lodge with her, so instead the knights wait outside. I love that. Rules of hospitality coming in clutch. Exactly. <laughs> Meanwhile, Lancelot encounters Melio, and they talk about what Melio heard regarding the Lark. The two of them proceed to the Waste Manor, presumably by chance, just as Arthur and Gowan are about to fight their way out. Lancelot and Melio charge, killing one knight each. That's, uh... Lancelot kill count 15. And dispersing the others. The Lady of the Manor takes this opportunity to confront Lancelot. Direct quote. The Lady of the Castle was holding a boy of great beauty by the hand. She recognized Lancelot as soon as she saw him and cried out to him, Lancelot, you killed this boy's father! But if it please God, he or another will take vengeance. And hearing this lady speak, Lancelot fell silent. They left the Waste Manor. That's it. Again, new quest. There's going to be a knight who comes and gets this quest to take revenge on Lancelot. And we're going to see whether it works. But we get this woman with her quest. She will have this done. Yep. And I do think this comes back. Yeah, it doesn't matter that these are protagonists. They're still going to be in danger. I mean, we know that they're not going to die, but theoretically, they're still being threatened. Right. Like, they'll be fine. They're the best knights in the world, but... They're still being threatened. They're not universally good people. No, they're not. Melio explains his plight to Gowan, and Gowan agrees to assist. This doesn't take too long. In the space of a paragraph, Gowan kills Nabigan and forces his men to return Melio's property. Job easy done. On his way back to Arthur and Lancelot, Gowan runs across a maiden who is on her way to a LARP at the Field of Silks, which I think is a cool name for a place. I imagine a bunch of big banners in the air with silks streaming off of them. Ooh, that is nice. That'd be pretty. She is also looking for the knight who won the Circle of Gold. Is she the original knight? Or the original lady? No, she works for her, I believe. Ooh, okay. And this is our final dialogue for the chapter. Perfect. Sire, she sends him word and begs through me that, for the sake of the saviour of the world, if he ever had pity on a lady or a maiden, he'd take vengeance on Navigan, who has been killing her men and destroying her land, for she has been told that he who won back the circle of gold is to take vengeance upon him. Damsel, you need toil no more in your quest, for I can tell you that the knight who won back the circle of gold has killed Navigan. How do you know, Sire? I know the knight well, and I saw him kill him. And to prove it, here is the circle of gold. He gave it to me so that I might take it to the one who has conquered the grail, and thus absolve your lady of her duty. Is Gawain just being obtuse? Yeah, he's 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 not taking credit. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, that reminds me. Uh, Gawain kill count eight. There we go. Percival still takes the cake so far. Speaking yes, of, by a we lot. haven't seen him in a while. Not yet today. Mm -hmm. Right. Anyway, the maiden heads back to her queen, but Gowan decides to go on to that LARP, figuring he's pretty likely to meet Arthur and Lancelot there. He soon meets a boy with bad news. Arthur's kingdom is losing the war with Kay and Brienne of the Isles, and many people now believe Arthur dead. 
Gowan takes this suddenly appearing messenger boy with him to the LARP, where he does indeed find Arthur and Lancelot. The prize at this LARP is a white warhorse and a golden crown, both of which are said to have belonged to a fine lady who is now dead. The winner will also have the responsibility of defending said lady's lands. That makes sense. Arthur wins, but there is a depressing twist. Oh no. <clears throat> to whom did the land belong? asked the king. And what was the name of the queen whose crown I see? Sire, the king's name was Arthur, and he was the finest in the world, but many people say he is dead. And the crown belonged to Queen Guinevere, who is now dead and buried. Oh, sh**. Which is a grievous pity. Their knights will not leave Cardwell, or however you say that, lest Brienne of the Isles seize the city, but they have sent word by me to the kingdom of Logres, entrusting to me the crown and the horse because I know the isles and the strange forests. They begged me to go to all the tournaments to find news of King Arthur and Gowan and Lancelot, and to tell them, if I could find them, that their land has fallen into great suffering. That's amazing. I was just going to comment, like, how weird it was that King Arthur decided to just go out and about for a lark. He was told by God to go on a pilgrimage. True, I guess. At what cost, apparently, to get him out of the kingdom. And there is then a long thing which I originally had highlighted to quote directly, but it can really be summed up as all three of them are sad and they weep. Makes sense. And Lancelot offers to go back to defend Arthur's lands until he returns from his pilgrimage. So he does. Very nice. And that's how that branch ends. On a rather depressing note, Guinevere did nothing wrong. No, she was she was fine. And she just dies off stage very suddenly. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that King Arthur didn't recognize her crown, but I suppose they didn't wear, go around wearing crowns all the time. Yeah. Also, I'd like to note that that means that in this version of the Arthur legend, while Lancelot and Guinevere are in love, or at least Lancelot is in love with Guinevere, it never, like, blows up in their face. That's true. Because Guinevere's That's dead. Very true. So, anyway, we still have plenty of time, so let's jump into Branch 22. All right. Arthur and Gowan reach the castle of the Fisher King, which is very nice in an extremely pious sort of way. They meet Percival there, hand over the circle of gold, and hang out for a while. We get an interesting note about the Grail, which is that just as there were no bells in Britain, there are no chalices in the land of King Arthur. And when he sees the chalice, which I believe is also the Grail... Yes. Hold on. <clears throat> Let me quote this. King Arthur saw all the transubstantiations and last appeared the chalice, and the hermit who was conducting the mass found a memorandum upon the consecration cloth, and the letters declared that God wanted his body to be sacrificed in such a vessel in remembrance of him. So basically, when King Arthur shows up and sees the grail ceremony, there's a little note that says, like, this is the vessel you're supposed to use for communion. Signed, God. So we know it's real. Yes. God wrote his name on it. He claimed it. Yep. There's also a hermit with a bell, which Arthur asked about. As you may recall, he's big into bells lately. Yeah, well, they're brand new. Turns out this is Archier, nay, Gurgaran. You may recall that being the pagan king who converted to Christianity after Gawain slew a giant for him. Yes, that's right. He became a hermit after converting his kingdom, and one day he was approached by three priests all named Gregory. <laughs> that's a hell of a boy band. I feel like that would be a very confusing boy band. Like, oh, my favorite's Gregory. Oh, which one? 
Well, you see, there's blonde hair Gregory, and then nose nose piercing Gregory, and then there's tattoo Gregory. I thought you were going to say nose hair Gregory. <laughs> I don't think that would be something that people would stand for. No, I don't think boy bands are allowed to have nose hair. I doubt, yeah. But yeah, anyway, so here's here's the... This is a direct quote describing what the three Gregories did. They told me that Solomon had cast three bells with which to honor the savior of the world and his sweet mother and his saints, and by his command they had brought this one to this island because there was none here. And they said that if I were to bring it to this castle, they would take all my sins upon themselves so that I would be absolved of them, and so would they. And so I have brought it here as they commanded, for God wishes it to be the model for all those that will be made in the kingdoms of this island where there have never been any before. So this is one of three bells made by Solomon, and it was brought here to be the model for all bells in this kingdom. Interesting. That makes sense. I mean, the part that doesn't make sense is it says Solomon had cast three bells with which to honor the savior of the world. Solomon... Correct me if I'm wrong, because, again, I'm not the practicing Christian in the room, but correct me if I'm (laughs) wrong. Solomon predates Jesus by, like, a bit. Yes, but they did know that the Savior was coming. Ah, okay. Like, the Jews are still actively waiting for the Messiah. Okay, so he was casting it for the hypothetical Messiah. Yes. Whoever they happen to be. Okay. Yes. The fact that it just so happened that he knew that three was the magic number because of the Trinity and stuff. That was probably a God thing. Also a plot thing, but like for the sake of the argument, a God thing. Well, Solomon knows a lot of stuff. I think he's famous for that. Yeah. Maybe he had special knowledge. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole thing is that a savior is coming. That makes sense. I rescind my criticism. (laughs) No, because that's true. You have to keep these things straight when you're when you're looking at these weird medieval texts. Because, you know, we've already seen that Josephus's ass is still around and it's 1 AD, but also there's knights running around. So it's completely reasonable that it would not make sense for Solomon to know about Jesus and cast a bell for him. But no, they did know about the Savior. Right. They just didn't know when he would pop up. Yeah, all right. I didn't think of it in those terms, but that makes sense to me, too. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, It's unclear why they stay so long, but they do. And one day they are interrupted by, quote, one of the three maidens of the cart who has been wounded in the arm. Oh, no. They have girl-bossed too close to the sun. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad that one got you. It doesn't say which maiden of the cart, because the author thinks they are interchangeable and probably just a Trinitarian metaphor anyway. So feel free to imagine the following news delivered by Groucha as usual, or Chica in a bad Italian accent, Uh, or Harpa in pantomime and honks. Indeed. It would seem that a cousin of the late Lord of the Fins, named Aristor of Amorave, has restarted the war on Percival's mother, Iglace, and stolen away Percival's sister, Dandrain. He is threatening to forcibly wed Dandrain, which is an extra bad threat because Aristor has a bad habit of decapitating his wives after a year. I wonder if that's where King Henry got his ideas. I was thinking a Scheherazade thing, but yeah, mm. it seems to be a recurring thing. That's extraordinarily unfortunate. So Percival has to go stop the wedding. A rom-com quest. (laughs) Here we go. I have been waiting so many branches for this. 
I was definitely imagining the bit in Wayne's world that's actually spoofing the graduate where he like goes to the church and bangs on the window is like no no 100 percent. percival resolves to do this to go stop the wedding and asks arthur and gawain to go help iglaise they leave and closing out this branch we get an explanation of the whole camelot confusion the camelot with a k and three a's right it says, My lords, do not think that this is the Camelot of which the storytellers tell, where King Arthur so often held court. This Camelot belonged to the widowed lady and stood at the edge of the wildest Isle of Wales, near the sea facing westward. There was nothing there but the castle and the forest and the river that ran around it. The Camelot of King Arthur stood at the entrance to the kingdom of Logris and was well populated. It was right at the edge of the king's land, and from there he could control the lands which bordered upon his in those parts. So they want us to know there are two Camelots. Right. Incredibly confusing. The one in this story is not the one that we usually hear of, but the one that we usually hear of does still exist. It just doesn't come up. It's just in a different place. Yeah. Which at first you look at and you're like, wow, that's he's just making it up. But when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. I think it makes more sense for surnames than for place names. But there are plenty of places that are just called the place. Mm-hmm. In different ways, like Hillshire or Treewood. Like, how many Treewoods are there? Or how many, for instance, how many Hillcrest Avenues have you been down? Or Hillcrest Drives? That's true. There are a lot of Hillcrests. There was a Hillcrest Elementary near where I grew up. Boom. There you go. And so, and there, I mean, there are a lot of towns that are named the same name all over the place. Like, to talk about the really silly ones, it's, you've got like Athens, Greece, and then Athens, I don't remember what American state it's in. It's like Texas or something. I think there's an Athens, Georgia. There you go. Athens, Georgia. It's in the South somewhere. There's there's a Houston, Alaska and a Houston, Texas. So I don't know. You could call this ridiculous. You could also call it verisimilitude. Yeah. But anyway, that's the end of Branch 22. And I think we still have time for a bit more. Branch 23. Very short. Yes. Gowan and Arthur come across a ruined castle, inhabited only by a priest and his clerk. In the morning at mass, they find that the chapel is very nice, despite most of the castle being in ruins, and they admire the paintings which decorate it. The priest explains the story told by the paintings. Long quote. It tells of the worthy vassal to whom this castle belonged, and of Sir Gowan and his mother. Sire, said the priest, Sir Gawain was born here, and raised up and baptized as you see depicted, and he was named Gawain after the lord of the castle, who had the same name. His mother, who conceived him by King Lot, did not want his birth to be known. So apparently this is an extramarital Oh, I see. Well, it's good to know that bastards get the same chance as everybody else in this society. He's a knight. Yes. She placed him in a beautiful vessel... Or at least I assume it's an extramarital conception because we're not get, given any other explanation as to why he doesn't want his birth, why she doesn't want his birth to be known. Right. She placed him in a beautiful vessel and begged the worthy lord of this castle to take him somewhere and leave him to die. And if he would not do so, she would ask someone else. But the good knight did not wish him to die and hid sealed letters inside the child's tunic, declaring that he was of royal descent on both his father's side and his mother's. And he put a great sum of gold and silver in the vessel so that the child might be fed, and wrapped him in a rich silken cloth, and then carried him away to a distant land. One day he came to a little hedged field, where there dwelt a most worthy man, and he gave the child to him and his wife, bidding them take care of him and feed him, for they might benefit from it greatly. Then the knight rode away, and they cared for the child and loved him dearly, 
and when he was grown up, they took him to Rome and showed the Pope the sealed letters. The Pope read them and realized that he was a king's son, and felt great pity and had him cared for and gave him to believe that he was of his family. Later he was chosen to be Emperor of Rome, but he did not wish to be. because Gawain? Yes. Alright, bet. Yeah, apparently Gawain was almost Emperor of Rome. I was going to say, why Why would you want to turn that down? But I can entirely understand why you would want to turn that down. Yeah, it, it, historically, it, it's pretty hit or miss. It's incredibly hit or miss, and also, that's a lot of work. Yes. And at this time, you really wouldn't want to be Emperor of Rome. Well, that depends on what time this is. Oh, stop. <laughs> You're right. Uh, but he did not wish to be, because people were now reproaching him for his birth, which had earlier been hidden from him. He left Rome and came to dwell here, and now it is said that he is one of the finest knights in the world, and no one dares take this castle for fear of him, nor the forest round about, for when the worthy knight died he left Sir Gawain his foster son this castle and bade me guard it until his return. Gawain is ashamed to have it known that he is of sketchy birth, but Arthur reminds him that he is also of sketchy birth. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Lots of quote-unquote illegitimate kings. And the priest says it's fine because he was baptized, and King Lot and his mother did eventually marry. Oh, okay. Yeah. Again, not clear what the deal was here. Arthur and Gawain stay to guard the castle until they can summon others to garrison it, and this very short chapter ends. Indeed. Very nice. That's kind of cool. We get a whole little backstory there. Yeah. So that's Gawain's backstory. Surprise, surprise. Now you know. Flashback episode. Yep. Very impressive. And that's all I've got for now, because I think we can go through 24 through 27 next time, and then do our segments then. Nice. All right. Well, then shall I hop over to Hildegard's Physica? Welcome to the Leech's Corner. All right. So what section are we doing now? I will remind you and our listeners, we have plants, elements, trees, stones, fish, birds, animals, reptiles, and metals. Have we done birds before? I don't think we've done birds. Let's hear about some birds. All right. Well, we have quite a few, so I won't be able to do all of them in one go, but I guess I'll just start at the top. A is for a pigeon. <laughs> Surprisingly, we don't even start with A. Is it alphabetical? Nope. I have no idea how she sorts these. The first one is griffin. Wouldn't describe that as a bird, but maybe it's by, like, position on the great chain of beings. I remember the first lizard was a dragon. That's true. Let me give you the introduction, and I think we'll be able to sort this out. So, as long as it is in the body, the human soul, being airy, is lifted high and sustained by air, lest it suffocate in the body. It dwells in the human body with sensitive intelligence and stability. Since birds are lifted by their feathers into the air, and since they dwell everywhere in the air, they are thus created and positioned in order that the soul with them might feel and know the things which should be known. What that means? I have no idea. I was going to say, I'm not sure why you think that would clear anything up. It doesn't, but she goes on to say, And so, while the soul is in the body, it extends everywhere, elevated by its thoughts. Which is a cool image. I, I like that thought. Mm -hmm. That the soul extends everywhere in the body or beyond. 
Perfection is shown in the Earth's moisture, so that the human being is discerned to have been complete in his formation and physical being, and the human being recognizes himself among the trees as corporeal. By these two things, moisture and corporality, he ought to understand that as long as the soul is in him, he cannot be added to. That is her introduction to birds. Right, yes. I feel like I know so much more about birds now. <laughs> yes, but do you know more about your own human soul, Mac? I'm not sure I followed, so no. <laughs> yeah, I'm not exactly sure what she's getting at here, except that like birds are like a human soul because both are airy and lifted by the air. Birds are like a human soul in that they both like crackers. I agree with this. Who doesn't love crackers? What is your favorite kind of cracker? Triscuits. Triscuits are good. I am very partial to Cheez-Its. But anyway, on to the griffins. <laughs> the griffin is very hot. And remember, these like hot, cool, wet, dry thing is like part of the four humors system. Right. Yeah. The, the griffin is hot is not an aesthetic judgment. So calm right. down, all you guys out there. <laughs> or a temperature judgment. It's just that like it has a hot essence, I guess. It has some of the nature of birds and some of the nature of beasts. Having the nature of birds, it is swift, so that the mass of its body does not weigh it down. Having the nature of beasts, it eats humans. Okay. <laughs> is this like, is this how you differentiate in the monster manual? Like the difference between a beast and a monstrosity versus like a fey creature or an elemental? Like elementals don't eat people. But beasts do. And did you say that was contrasted to its nature as a bird? Because I think some birds do eat people. They just wait till they're dead. You're entirely correct. I don't know if Hildegard will talk about that. But anyway, when the griffin flies in the air, it does not fly in the burning heat, but approaches it a bit. Its flesh is not good for a human to eat. If one should eat its flesh, he would be greatly harmed by it, since it holds fully within itself the nature of beasts. In both natures, it has imperfection. So it's not perfectly a beast or perfectly a bird. So it's not, like, it's a Impure. monster. Yes, you can't eat it. It is vile. Its hybrid nature makes it poisonous, I see. When it is time for the laying of its eggs, the griffin seeks a cave with a wide interior but a narrow opening so that it is very difficult to enter. Inside the cave, because of her fear of lions, the griffin guards her eggs carefully. A lion can smell them from a long way off, and, if able to come near, it would trample and break them. The griffin is always on guard against the lion and, despising its strength, does not allow herself to remain near one. Nevertheless, she allows a bear to be near, since a bear is weaker than a lion. I don't think that's true, but okay. She places her eggs in such a way that neither sunshine nor wind can touch them. Neither flesh nor the eggs nor other parts of the griffin are much used for medicines, since in its two natures it has more deficiency than perfection. I find it interesting that lions can smell griffin eggs and will hunt them down, but not to eat them, to step to on To trample them. them. I mean, what does the lion get out of this? I feel like it would eat the griffin. Maybe it doesn't eat the eggs. Maybe it eats the shells? I don't know. Hmm. But I really enjoy the fact that we sort of get a geological perspective of their habitat. Yes. Because we know they're sort of in the region of Africa, because that's where lions are. They're also close to where bears are. So maybe even going up into Mesopotamia, we don't know maybe over into Asia, but we do know where they lay their eggs. 
Which is great, because now, if you're sick and tired of the monster manual, you can use this. Yeah. Boom. Mountain caves, full of griffin eggs. With Watch very, out for the lions. Yeah, with very narrow openings. All right. The next bird that we get to is the ostrich. Exciting. I was not expecting there to be an ostrich. Right? The ostrich is very hot and has in it the nature of beasts. So I guess it also eats people. <laughs> No, maybe I mean, it, it's just that I, like, spend too much time on the internet and I read too much, like, Tumblr stuff. But every time you say the ostrich is hot, I'm like, I bet someone <laughs> actually thinks that somewhere. <laughs> I suppose. Never underestimate the furries. Oh, that's right. I wasn't even thinking of that. I was thinking of, like, the monster f***ers. I wasn't. See, I wasn't thinking of the monster f***ers, but, okay, you know, we covered the board. Anyway, tell us more about these hot ostriches. <laughs> yes. Okay, first off, I think it has the nature of a beast because it can't fly. It's a flightless bird, so it has to have the nature of a beast, not a bird. Because mm -hmm. birds are characterized by the ability to fly in Hildegard's book. Except for the fact that, you know, she puts them in the bird category. Yeah, so. I was going to say, so why is it here? I don't know. She knows it's a bird, but it's like an improper bird. It's doing know. bird wrong. It Apparently. Great chain of being and all of that. Anyway, it has the feathers of birds, but does not fly with them, since it runs quickly, just as a beast. It dwells on land, eating on pasture lands. She is of such great heat that if she were to keep her eggs warm herself, they would be burned up and her young would not come forth. And so she conceals them in the sand where they are warmed by the moisture and heat. After the chicks have come out of the eggs, they run as other chicks do, after and along with their mother. All right. I feel like this makes a lot of sense in the Middle Ages, mm -hmm. that, like, why wouldn't the bird sit on the eggs? Oh, well, because it would be damaging in some way. And it's not that, like, oh, nobody can find the eggs if they're under the sand. Yeah, ostriches do actually bury their eggs. Is that a real thing? I think so. But let's Google it to be sure. They do. Ah, yep. Oh, okay. That's why you get the idea that ostriches stick their head in the sand is because they're checking on their eggs. Okay, that makes sense. There you go. So yeah, like, this makes sense. Like, from a logical perspective, it's the wrong answer, but it's a good answer. Mm -hmm. Anyway, a person with epilepsy should often eat ostrich flesh. I don't know how you're going to get that in medieval Europe, but... No, going to be tough. Going to be tough. It will furnish him with powers and take away the madness of the epilepsy. What kind of powers? Like, I don't know. Vision? It doesn't say. I think, like, strength powers, like when you're renewed as a person... When you're feeling better, you have that vigor again. Okay. It diminishes their superfluous flesh and makes them strong. It is not good for thin or sick people since it would be too strong a food for them. That just tells me that people can't digest it very well. Diminishes their superfluous flesh. Yes. Is that a problem with epileptics? I don't think so. I think we're just talking about, like, large people. Oh. I don't know. Anyway, one who is melancholic so that he has a heaviness and listlessness of the mind should frequently eat ostrich liver. It will diminish his melancholy and by lightening his mind, make it pleasant and charming. Its eggs are not good to eat since they are poisonous, but one who has dropsy should pulverize the shells from which the chicks have emerged and place them in water. He should drink it often, either fasting or with meals, and he will be cured. The heart and lungs and other parts of the ostrich are not good for medicines because the ostrich does not have the complete strength of birds or beasts. So it's like the griffin. Right, but why is its liver and flesh not also impacted by this 
toxic hybrid thing. I would assume for the same reason that we don't eat all the organs of other creatures. Like, if you eat the meat of... If you eat the liver of a polar bear, you'll die because it has too much vitamin A. It's toxic. I have heard that. But, like, the rest of the flesh you, like, wouldn't necessarily die off of. Alright. I just find it odd that she's like, the, the other organs aren't any good because it's an impure hybrid. And like, well, why is the liver good then? I don't know. That's just what we make pate out of. Anyway, should we do one more? Sure. Okay. Although apparently someone's eating ostriches, because when I tried to Google ostrich burying eggs, I got ostrich burger as the suggestion. You absolutely can eat ostrich eggs. I know that for a fact. Oh, they're not poisonous. No, they are not. Hildegard was, in fact, incorrect. I'm shocked. <laughs> I know, usually she's so right. I go to her for everything. Yeah, she's the only person who gives us the straight truth about rivers flowing away from the sea. Who would have known? See, it's not the flat earth crowd we have to be aware, like, be worried about. It's those fools who think that rivers flow into the ocean. Yes. Obviously. <laughs> anyway, our final bird this week is the peacock. The peacock is hot and moist, and it has the nature of both birds and beasts in it. Again, I'm assuming because it doesn't really fly. I'm pretty sure they can. I don't think they can fly distances. I think they do like the little chicken thing. Yeah, I think so. That's my understanding. Yeah. We used to have them wandering at the zoo when where I was growing up. Like, they wouldn't be in an enclosure. They would just hang around. Interesting. They were really cool. And then they squawked, and it terrified me. Yeah, I'm surprised that they were chill enough to, like, just be around. Yeah, they were. And people were very good about, like, not coming too close to them. Hmm. I don't know how they manage that, but anyway. Before there was a peacock, certain small animals capriciously mingled with certain birds in coitus, whence peacocks were born. Really? That's what she says. Okay. I'd love to know which ones she thinks are responsible, but certain animals and certain birds... Just produced the peacock, yes. The peacock is fierce and cunning and does not seek high altitudes in its flight. The male peacock has devious, unclean habits. It sometimes mixes in coitus with small animals and little beasts. Young, which they have brought forth, have the shape of their mother, not their father. So any anything could be a... Anything could be half peacock. <laughs> You'd never know. Okay, but you would know... Because some young, uh, for some of them anyway, are colored with the color of the father's feathers or crest. When the peacock sees these little animals running, he recognizes them as his children and loves them. When a peahen lays her eggs, I like that, it's the right word. When the peahen yeah. lays her eggs, she hides them so that the male does not see them. It is as if she were ashamed to have brought forth eggs and to have generated a chick covered with an eggshell rather than one with bare flesh. I feel like that's projection, but all right. Definitely. The male hates the eggs and breaks them if he finds them. This is a phenomenon that can occur where the males of a species will break the eggs of that same species from a different male. Like, not their own eggs, but a competing male's eggs because they're trying to keep their genes at the top. So that's where I'm guessing this comes from. Yeah, that makes sense. So the female hides her eggs. Let's see. She then hides her chicks until they have grown more and can run. After they are strengthened and able to walk, she goes with them to the male. Seeing them approach, he knows they are his chicks. He strikes them with his feathers and shows himself joyful. Still, the female segregates the chicks, moving them away from him until they are stronger, fearing that he might trample them with his feet. 
The male seeks a certain altitude at which he knows the air is blowing, which will quickly bring forth his feathers in great numbers and length. When he sees these, he rejoices, as beasts rejoice in their leap. So this is like when his feathers pop up and he does mm -hmm. his little jumpy dance. Later, other air blows on the feathers. It softens them and draws them out, and he is distressed until they grow again. The female does not seek that air in order that her feathers grow, but stays as if constrained in lower places. So that's that's why, according to Hildegard, the peahen does not have the long, big feathers of the male has. She doesn't jump into the air? Yes, she's stuck on a lower level and can't get up to grow those feathers. So Hildegard's like, she totally could if she wanted, but she just doesn't. It's not, it's not like there's, what's the word? Sexual... Dimorphism. Thank you, sexual dimorphism. The flesh of a peacock is good for neither a healthy nor sick person to eat. One who is healthy is able to survive it, but it stirs up and violently moves all noxious humors in a sick person. However, dry and preserve the bladder of a peacock. If an ulcer or carbuncle boils up on a person, tie this over it and it will gently rupture. After it ruptures, place this on it again. It will dry out the rotten matter and the person will be healed much more quickly. It's like putting a blister band-aid on a blister. Mm -hmm. I like gently rupture as a phrase that doesn't really seem to work. Not particularly. Rupture doesn't really give the connotation of anything gentle. Yeah. But I find this to be very interesting because we looked at a French cookbook that included a recipe for peacock. Yeah, well, peacock, I think, was commonly eaten at, like, fancy banquets. Mm -hmm, absolutely. But Hildegard does not recommend it. But anyway, there we go. There is our Hildegard for the week. I like that peacocks are apparently like dragons in that they reproduce with other smaller animals and make things that are, like, half peacock. Half peacocks. I guess maybe that would account for, like what birds of paradise look like or like little albino animals. People just look at those and they're like half peacock. Yeah. I'm trying to picture like what an animal would look like that was half peacock. And um, I have no idea. Yeah. But it's a great idea. I would love to see somebody use that. Yeah. And it's a great little mythic origin of like birds and beasts came together and created the peacock. Yeah, that's so weird. Especially because they're not mythological creatures. Like, I would expect that of the griffin, you know? Yeah. But the peacock. Yeah, it would have made way more sense for the griffin or for the ostrich. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the peacock is pretty clearly a bird, like a bird bird. Ostriches are really weird. Yeah. They're very, very strange. Right. So I can see, like, someone looking at them and going, like, that's not a real bird. That's part <laughs> something else. That's definitely something. It's like one of those giraffe things plus a bird. Right? But no, it's, they're like, no, that one's a bird. It's just a beast bird. Beast bird. Beast bird. It's like a, it's like a, as Dr. Hughes always says, a non-human human being. It's a non-bird bird? Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Clearly. Obviously. We've solved it. Yes, everything makes sense now. Oh my gosh. And with that glorious revelation, I suppose we'll, we'll leave you listeners with that. Yeah, I think that's a good place to wrap up on. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, you can check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, for more medieval and geeky-related discussions. 
and feel free to reach out. We are always excited to listen to you guys and hear what you have to say. We're on Twitter at Maniculum, and we're on Instagram at Maniculum Podcast. Special thanks to Sandra Boyle for creating our music. You can check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Do you want to be a knight at my lap? That is not the line. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how that makes sense as a euphemism. I saw, do you want to be my knight at the LARP and just switched it? I was wondering if you'd catch that on your own. (laughs) It does sound much uh, naughtier when you phrase it that way. It does. Okay, anyway.